This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. I just love it when we get a win. I absolutely love it because we haven't gotten a lot of wins lately. But when it comes to what's going on with churches being shut down and being treated differently than secular entities during the coronavirus pandemic, there have been some heartbreaking stories. But now it seems the tide is turning a little bit. As we have been talking about recently, the U.S. Supreme Court has handed down a couple of decisions that have been favorable to churches seeking to be treated the same as secular entities. We had that New York York case, and we've had some other cases that have come along. This is really good. These churches in Nevada who have been fighting at the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to be able to be treated the same as secular entities, particularly casinos, have now won their case. This is really great. As the Las Vegas Review Journal reports, a Las Vegas church expects to invite nearly 200 people to services this week after this federal appeals court overturned the governor's statewide limits on gatherings at houses of worship. And the Reverend Jimmy Morales, who's senior pastor at Calvary Chapel, Lone Mountain, said this is a victory for churches in Nevada. We're excited that churches in Nevada have been set free to worship God freely. Along with that Las Vegas chapter, the church's Dayton location in Lyon County challenged Sisolak's 50-person limit on places of worship. They argued that the governor imposed tougher restrictions on them than on most businesses in Nevada and the Court agreed. Sisolak didn't like it very much, but this is good. The Ninth Circuit Judge Milan Smith called the Supreme Court opinion a seismic shift in free exercise law, and that was the decision upon which this court based its decision. They said the Supreme Court's decision in Roman Catholic Diocese compels us to reverse the district court. Just like the New York restrictions, Sisolak's directive treats numerous secular activities and entities significantly better than religious worship services. Casinos, bowling alleys, retail businesses, restaurants, arcades, and other similar secular entities are limited to 50% of fire code capacity, and yet houses of worship are limited to 50 people, regardless of their fire code capacities. So I, I love this quote, actually, from the attorney for the Las Vegas church. Sigal Chata said the Ninth Circuit has spoken during this holy period and has found that the free exercise of religion still lives loudly in all of us and is above random and arbitrary gubernatorial orders. So praise God for this decision. Uh, it's really good to see this. And I'm just excited. I'm excited. I hope that the freedom will continue to ring across the fruited plain for churches from coast to coast. I'm glad to see this. Really excited. All right. I want to turn my attention for a little bit here to the issue of neo-evangelicalism. Now, that may sound a little bit high-minded. It's not going to be high-minded. Just stick with me for a moment. We have had in the church a Protestantism for the last uh, 100 years or so 
we went from the modernist movement around the Scopes Monkey trial at the beginning of the 20th century and the William Jennings Bryan and the Darwinism and all that. We had the fundamentalist modernist controversy. This led down to the 40s when we saw the rise of the neo-evangelicals, the Christianity Today crowd, Harold Ockengay and Carl Henry and that whole crowd, Billy Graham. The idea that what we really need to do is get away from this fundamentalist thing. We need to get away from the separatist mindset and from the people who are saying we we need to stand against modernism in such a way that we are faithful to scripture, that bothered them because they just were not the cool kids. I mean, that's what it came down to. And I don't completely disagree with the original neo-evangelicals on this point, which is we want to be able to have an effect on the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't disagree with that. that that's actually exactly what I believe, although I wouldn't at all classify myself as a neo-evangelical, precisely because you can see where they all ended up. And I'm going to get to that. What's happened, though, is the heirs of the neo-evangelicals of the 40s and 50s are basically the woke. They're the social justice crowd. They're the ones who say homosexuality, mm, not so sure if it's that bad as long as you're, you know, maybe not technically engaging in it. But if you're same sex attracted, we just need to understand you and stop being so homophobic. We need to embrace you as a sexual minority and on and on and on. So this brings me to one of the things that I have mentioned on many occasions, and that is the Russell Moore approach to the pro-life movement. Russell Moore, the president of the ERLC at the Southern Baptist Convention, is the one who has been pushing this holistic pro-life thing. This has gone on at the Evangelicals for Life conference, which has taken place in Washington, D.C., alongside the March for Life. And their whole shtick, as I've mentioned many times before, if you haven't heard me talk about this before, I will tell you again. This whole approach is lifted from the old Ron Sider book, Completely Pro-Life. And he's an old leftist, and he was very active, more active than he is now. He was more active during the 70s. His whole shtick was, yes, we should be pro-life, but to be really pro-life, you have to engage in all of these other leftist political activist causes. So his thing back then was, you know, we have to oppose nuclear proliferation. You know, the nuke thing was very big back in the 70s. Now, Moore and his friends have taken the holistic pro-life concept and kind of updated it for a new audience. So their whole thing is, sure, the babies are, you know, we don't want to kill babies. We don't want abortion. That's wrong. But if you're really pro-life, then you'll also be on the uh, on the same track we are when it comes to refugee resettlement and you'll be on the same track we are when it comes to illegal aliens and all that, which has driven me nuts because it's just dishonest. That's never been what the pro-life movement has been about. Those are completely separate issues. You can't just take some kind of blanket statement about people being created in God's image, which they certainly are, and then extrapolate out of that. Therefore, every single leftist cause that I care about, because those people are created in the image of God, to be a Christian means to be a leftist. Of course, they'll never say it that way. But why why is this coming up again? Because now, Baptist Press reports, the Southern Baptist Convention's president, J.D. Greer, who is very much on the woke train, will be the first president of the convention to speak at the March for Life. Now, why is this a problem? For me, I'm not saying it's a problem for the head of the SBC necessarily to speak at the March for Life. I haven't seen his remarks or what he will be saying. But what concerns me about it is that these woke SBC leaders who have done all kinds of bad things, which we've talked about, you know, ad nauseum. What I'm concerned about is that this is another way 
to get to pro-life conservatives and to try to guilt them into merging with the left and going further left. This is the crowd that punches right and always tries to coddle up to the left. That's always been their their way. And so what will happen here? Will this be an attempt by the woke SBC to try to influence unsuspecting pro-life conservatives who show up at the March for Life because of abortion and abortion only and then bring them into the fold, so to speak, by using this very subtle technique of saying, if you're really pro-life, dot, 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 you'll be for this, that, and the other thing. I don't like it because I think it's dishonest. And I think that it's another attempt to move evangelicalism to the left. This is what these people do. This is what these people have been doing for the last seven or eight years. Since Russell Moore came on board, this is what we've gotten. And it's spread and it's metastasized and it's become a big, big problem to the extent that Bible-believing Christians who have noticed what has gone on have stood up more and more, praise God for it, and called them out on it and said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? When we look at the old pro-life movement going all the way back to you know, the Pro-Life Action League, it, it was never about everybody creating the image of God and we have to stand for life. It, and it didn't need to be. It was about overturning Roe v. Wade. It's about the genocide of 60 million plus little babies. That's what it should be about. You can also care about people in other contexts. And we do. It's why we support preborn. It's why we love the fact that at crisis pregnancy centers, there are these free ultrasounds for these women, thanks to your generosity. Because when these women see their babies on ultrasounds, 80% of the time, they'll choose life. That's wonderful. And there is this effort to help these moms. So across the board, these things are already happening in conservative circles. I don't know why these people have to come along and try to make things about a holistic pro-life approach. They're never just satisfied with the good that's always being done by conservatives every single day. We're always doing the Christian life wrong. And you're not supposed to notice that you have this really strong tie between these woke leaders and World Relief, which is a federal government contractor, which has lost a lot of money while Trump was in office because he put the kibosh on a lot of this terrorist-linked country refugee settlement, which was the right thing to do. But I have more to tell you along these lines. We're going to take a break and come right back. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little 
spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen and knowing that there's life growing inside. I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn currently has seven centers without ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost $15,000, more than most centers can afford. But right now, through a matching grant, your donation of $7,500 will place a machine in a needy women's center in your area. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us. And we're talking a little bit about neo-evangelicalism. And don't be intimidated by that term if you're thinking this is going to be some kind of seminary class. It is not. I was alerted to a tweet by Ken Ham, the founder of Answers in Genesis. And I'm excited. Ken's going to be on with me next week. Uh, Ken Ham, who has done more than just about anybody I know to defend six-day creation and really stand strong on the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, put out a little clip of a show, a webcast, I guess it was, or just an individual video that was put out by Phil Vischer. Now, Phil Vischer is the creator of VeggieTales. You'll recall VeggieTales. If you're a parent, you'll especially recall VeggieTales. Phil Vischer has gone a little woke. And I don't know if you've been following this, but Ken posted this and he said, Phil Vischer, creator of VeggieTales, accuses me and the Creation Museum of the rejection of mainstream science in his new video called What is an Evangelical? The truth is Vischer falsely calls evolution and Big Bang science, quote unquote, when they're nothing but the pagan religion of our day as fallible man attempts to explain everything by natural processes without God. Such compromise as Vischer has is rampant in the church and undermines biblical authority and is a major cause of why much of the church is so lukewarm and losing the younger generations. And I agree completely with what Ken had to say. So I want to play you some of these clips because I have a lot to say on this. Let's get to some of these clips. Vischer, I'm saving you a lot of time here because he does a lot of going into the background of how we got all these terms, evangelicalism, fundamentalism, modernism, uh, the Scopes trial, all this kind of stuff. Then he notes how the definition of evangelical came to collapse. This is cut one. As of the mid-1960s, the three streams of American Protestantism were very clear. So ask yourself a question. Have you ever heard anyone introduce themselves as a fundamentalist Christian? No? Where did all the fundamentalists go? Well, it depends on what he means by that. Fundamentalists long ago became a pejorative. Most people don't use the term because they don't want to be screamed at. But what does it mean to be a fundamentalist? For most people, they relate the term back to Bob Jones University and that whole crowd, the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, that whole movement. But, you know, that was many, many years ago and people are a little, you know, shy to equate themselves in some circles with the term fundamentalist because they don't want to be called racists. Going back to that Supreme Court decision against Bob Jones on segregation. There's a lot of history here. But in fact, if you go to the Bob Jones University website, they say that their doctrinal positions follow in the spirit of historical biblical fundamentalism. And so they're saying it. I don't know what he's talking about, but this is going somewhere. Vischer says 
it was that Supreme Court decision against Bob Jones on segregation that motivated Jerry Falwell, the founder of the Moral Majority, not the son who's been in the news recently, but the father who founded the Moral Majority, that that decision by the Supreme Court on segregation motivated him to get into politics, not just the issue of abortion. This is cut two. Angry Southern fundamentalists like Falwell decided they could no longer stay on the sidelines. Liberal Northerners could take everything away from them. It was time to re-engage. The exile was over. By the mid-1970s, more Americans than ever before were describing themselves as born again, and political strategists were noticing. Falwell and others wanted to build as big a voting bloc as possible, hoping to engage Christians of all stripes, not just fundamentalists, in supporting conservative candidates and conservative issues. But what to call this bloc? The answer had presented itself by the time a born-again Sunday school teacher from Georgia won the White House. Newsweek magazine declared 1976 the year of the evangelical. The media needed a handle for all these conservative white Christians who were suddenly shaping national politics, and almost no one was claiming to be a fundamentalist anymore. Okay, well, let me just say this. Let me say this. I did not know Jerry Falwell personally, but I did read his biography, which was written by his wife. And according to his wife, who probably knew Jerry Falwell better than Phil Vischer knew Jerry Falwell, the reason that Jerry Falwell reluctantly got into politics was not because of the Supreme Court decision against BJU. The reason he got into politics was because of the issue of abortion. And that, according to his biography, was the sole motivating reason, because up until then, he was very reluctant to engage in politics. He was about soul winning, as all good fundamentalists were and continue to be. And again, when we're talking about fundamentalist, the the coinage of that term came from the release of those essays back around the time of the fundamentalist modernist controversy called The Fundamentals. I own The Fundamentals. It's actually a great series of books. You should read it. Everybody should read it because it's about adhering to biblical Christianity, the basics of biblical Christianity. So again, I think he's getting the history on Jerry Falwell wrong, but he seems to delight a little bit in being able to kick the fundamentalists, which is probably, again, why a lot of people who hold to the fundamentals of the faith don't really want to be called that anymore. And something else, too, is that when the evangelical label came to be placed upon white Christians, that was the media. The church didn't say, don't call me a fundamentalist anymore. So, you know, a little bit of playing with this whole situation historically. Now, Phil Fisher describes how evangelicals emerged as a definition for white Christians. Cut three. When it came to politics, we were all evangelicals. And suddenly, the three strands of white Protestant Christianity in America collapsed back into two, mainline Protestants and everyone else who wasn't black. And everyone else who wasn't black was now an evangelical. Well, last I checked, the mainline Protestant Protestant denominations are still mostly white. I'm not really, you know, he's turning this into a racial thing. I mean, there's some historicity here and there's some truth to what he's saying. But can you see kind of where he's going with this and leaving out some of the other details that I think are significant? Mainly that the mainline Protestants are pretty much white, too. So let's listen to the next cut, because this is about neo-evangelicalism. This is cut four. 
So today, Wheaton College is an evangelical school, and Bob Jones University is an evangelical school. Billy Graham is an evangelical, and Jerry Falwell, a senior and junior, are both evangelicals. If you're a white Christian and not a modernist or a Catholic, you're an evangelical, which has left the term more or less meaningless. Neo-evangelicalism used to be a legitimate movement, embracing a high view of the Bible while rejecting the excesses of fundamentalism, which included cultural separatism, anti-intellectualism, and echoes, sometimes loud echoes, of racism. But those distinctions have been lost in a race to build a bigger voting bloc to take back the culture. All right. Doesn't sound like he likes fundamentalists very much. Right. And they're all racists. Now you can go back and you can look at some of the very bad positions that were taken by some people in that movement pertaining to segregation. But everybody disagrees with that now, including people who may have once engaged in it. They've changed their mind. They came around. I guess nobody gets any credit for that. There may have been some people who came around reluctantly, but I think most people who you know, maybe had bought into that at the time, realized ah, that was wrong. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Now, what about evangelicalism in America today? Listen to Cut 5. So, what is evangelicalism in America today? It's a hot mess. What started out as a high regard for the Bible and personal conversion has devolved into a catch-all category for white Christians engaged in conservative politics. A high regard for the Bible, a focus on the work of Christ on the cross, the desire to see people choose to follow Jesus, a desire to help others using our hearts, our hands, and our minds. These are good things. They are neither Republican nor Democratic things. They are biblical things. But today, old currents of fundamentalism are resurgent. The desire to declare war on our enemies, the rejection of mainstream science, the belief that the world is out to get us, the longing for an idealized past while downplaying or entirely ignoring racial injustice. Even the early 20th century fixation on end times prophecy in the nation of Israel. We could make a video about each one of these topics, but evangelicals like Graham, Akengay, and many others sought to resist these fundamentalist tendencies while still proclaiming the Bible as the inspired word of God. That is why I haven't given up on the name evangelical or the ideals of the neo-evangelical movement. Instead, I want to remind us what the movement was all about and what, hopefully, it can be about again. Well, that was a mouthful, huh? So if you believe in six-day creation, you don't believe in science, and you're, you're nuts if you want to do anything about this godless culture by sharing the gospel and working for things like the life issue. You're just, you know, the disdain is just kind of dripping out of his mouth. Let's just say something very briefly, though. It was the modernists, as we know, who wanted to jettison fundamental doctrines from the Bible in favor of ethics like love your neighbor. They were the people of the social gospel. Who are the purveyors of the social gospel today? It's the Vischer crowd. It's the woke crowd. It's the Wheaton Christianity Today crowd. These are the people who are embracing social justice, cultural Marxism, critical race theory, the Black Lives Matter ideal, wokeness, progressive politics, reparations, linking arms with old Marxists like Jim Wallace from the 70s, these these old leftist activists, equating the pro-life movement with refugees and illegal aliens, hiring professors like they did at Wheaton who end up saying that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, taking cash from the 
the Lilly Endowment to reimagine church. We have a whole host of people doing that. Interfaith dialogue. What about neighborly faith at Wheaton College? What about bouncing black pro-lifers like Ryan Bomberger from Wheaton so people wouldn't be offended by it? What about taking money from Soros? What about embracing feminism and ordaining women? And what about a soft acceptance of homosexual lusts and homosexual behavior in some extreme examples? What about the embrace of the church growth movement and evolution and Darwinism and worldliness in all its forms? You know what? When you have egg on your face and a plank in your eye, you might want to look in the mirror and look at your own crowd and make some biblical adjustments there before going after biblical Christians who at least want to live a life and hold to doctrines that are actually in the Bible. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time and no doubt the most attacked book as well. Take, for instance, the famous quote from the French philosopher Voltaire, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. And we'll talk about a false prophecy. But the 66 books that make up the one book we call the Bible are under attack today in various ways, resulting in many people erroneously believing that the Bible is just full of myths or mere moral lessons like Jesus's parables. And of course, we know that isn't so and that the Bible is God's inspired and inerrant word. But what kinds of answers can we give to people who ask us about the reliability of scripture? We're going to cover that today with Dr. Harold Sala. He is an author, a Bible teacher and speaker and founder and president of Guidelines International. And today we'll be talking about his book, Can You Trust the Bible? Great question and great to have you here, Dr. Sala. How are you? Well, I'm fine. And I've been looking forward to my opportunity to chat with all of you folks where you are. Well, we were looking forward to it too. Glad you're here. What What would you say about the extent to which the trustworthiness of God's Word is under attack today? How do you see the Bible being under attack right now? Well, the, the case for the authority of the Bible is the ironclad. You can go to the Bible and you can come away with it and your life will be changed or you can deny it in spite of the tremendous amount of evidence. And subsequently, you're left with very little to give you hope. Right. Yeah, that's right. And yet there are people who will go on the Internet or they'll read some atheist blog or something like that. And they'll say, you know, the Bible's not reliable. It, it's full of myths. It's full of stories. It's just moral lessons, those sorts of things. Why do people say things like that? Well, because they would prefer to ignore the truth of this book that has impacted the lives of people for 2000 years. And I'd tell them, hey, read my book, and then you tell me that you can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. Well, when we start with the uniqueness of the Bible, and there's no doubt that the Bible is unique in human history. What makes it unique? What would you point to? Well, first of all, the Bible answers the tough questions of life, like, 
Who am I? What makes life worth living? What happens when I draw my last breath here and I'm in beyond uh, the virus or whatever? And so when you face those questions, then you have answers in this book that are ironclad. No other book in the world is in greater demand than the Bible. It outsells others' books by a big margin. Yep. In 1971, astronaut Ed Mitchell went to the moon in Apollo 14. He took with him a Bible, King James Version, reduced by hundreds of times, and he left it on the moon. I had a letter from a student recently who said, how do I know the Bible is any different than any other book? And he asked, why should I accept the authority of this book as opposed to others' religious books? It's a valid question. Hmm. He wasn't trying to be difficulty. He wanted an answer. And I would tell him, number one, this book tells me about God, who he is, and how I can have a relationship with him. It's the basis of our faith. And it is the Bible that tells us about Jesus' birth. It's the only book that really tells us how to live and answers the tough questions. And it's the key to spiritual growth. No other book in the world is in greater demand than this one. This one outsells all the other books in the world. Absolutely right. You you know, some of the things, though, that you say about the uniqueness of the Bible include uniqueness in what the Bible claims and uniqueness in its message. I mean, this is really true. The, The claims of Jesus Christ are unlike the claims of any other prophet throughout human history. And and that alone makes the Bible unique. But how do we know that it's true? When we're looking at saying to somebody, the claims that the Bible makes for itself make it unique, but they also need to be considered because they are valid. They actually are true. Absolutely. There are more than 20,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible that exist today. And that is important because we know for a fact that they have not been tampered with and tried to be rewritten. It is the best-selling book in all the world. George Barna says that 93% of all Americans own Bibles, but only a half of those people ever bothered to read it. So subsequently, in this book, we find the answer to the needs of our lives and what makes life worth living. Right. Right. And also, I think this is a really good thing you've pointed out, that the Bible is the official biography of the world's most influential person. I mean, what other book really tells us about Jesus Christ? We we divide time by the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's so significant. So that alone is worth considering the claims of the Bible, right? Oh, oh absolutely. And uh, there are so many copies of scripture that have endured the test of time that we, uh, you know, know with that with a relative amount of certainty that the book has been passed from generation to generation without being corrupted. Yes. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because when you mentioned that there are more than 20,000 ancient manuscripts, that's no small thing, because when we look at some of the ancient literature that we never question, we don't have anywhere near as many copies of some of these ancient books as we do of the Bible. Why does that matter so much? Well, I think it matters because it tells us that the Bible has been passed from generation to generation without being corrupted. When Sir Walter Scott, who was the British poet, lay dying, he made an urgent request, bring me the book. And there are many books in the library, said somebody who was at his bedside, which book do you want? Impatiently, he replied, 
there's only one book, the Bible, bring me the book. <laughs> I right. think the fear of the Bible, inversely, is the barometer of the respect for the power of this book. Yeah, right. Well, what about people who are hung up on the issue of contradictions? Because I've always kind of laughed at this claim. Usually the people who say the Bible is full of contradictions, when you turn to them and say, can you name one? They never can name one. They just like saying the Bible is full of contradictions. What about that issue and, and how that relates to the trustworthiness of the Bible? Well, by and large, if they think there's a contradiction, I would like to know what is the contradiction and how can this be resolved? For example, archaeology uh, is uh, one of the ways that we confirm the authority of Scripture. For example, Catherine Kenyon, who was a British archaeologist, went to Jericho. And in Jericho, she uh, discovered that there were two Jerichos. There was ancient Jericho, and then there was modern Jericho. So Matthew says that Jesus was going out of Jericho. Luke says Jesus was going into Jericho. But until Catherine Kenyon went there, people said, aha, that's a contradiction. It was no contradiction, because the archaeologists discovered that there was a housing boom. And what they did is went outside old Jericho, and build a parameter around the city, and that was considered to be New Jericho. Issue resolved. Yep. So in far too many cases, people point fingers without really knowing what the score is. And in my book, I give us evidence of why this book speaks to the needs of people today and why it is absolutely trustworthy. Yes. And you know what I find so interesting is how the more time goes along and the more archaeologists discover certain things about the Bible, the more trust we can put into it. I mean, you think about all of the names of people in the Bible that archaeology has confirmed because of what, you know, these archaeologists have found and places like you say, and also, you know, coins and things like that. I mean, as time goes along, archaeology becomes more and more and more of a friend to the Bible. It seems that, the, you know, there should be an evidence for people to say, well, wait a minute, there's really a trustworthy claim here in the Bible. We, we keep seeing it everywhere we turn. Oh, there's absolutely no question in this regard. If a person comes with an open mind and considers the evidence, he may walk away not liking what he's read, but he can be certain this has been passed from generation to generation and is what God wants us to know today. Right, And so there, there's so much evidence. There's the manuscript evidence. There are more than 20,000 manuscripts in existence today of this book that we call the Bible. Wonderful. We'll take a short pause. We'll come back with Dr. Harold Sala. Can you trust the Bible? Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Did you know that Bible-less believers around the world are praying to receive their very own copy of God's Word? Through the Ministry of Bible League International, you can send those Bibles today. Hear from Meng in Vietnam. If they don't have Bible, how they can find the truth? Because the Bible like a map to bring them to find the truth. And many people, they are really uh, hungry for the Word of God and then they need the Bible. 
Nepo is a pastor in Ghana praying for Bibles for former Muslim radicals now following Christ. Anna was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Albania, but her godly witness changed his heart and now he needs a Bible. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by terrorists in Mexico, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with others. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word? $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 yes word 800 yes word 800 yes word or there's a banner to click at janetmeffer.com the healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states did you miss it don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program sign up for liberty health share as a member of liberty health share you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses you can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month and there are no contracts or commitments Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have with us as well, Dr. Harold Sala. He's an author and Bible teacher, founder and president of Guidelines International and author of the book we're talking about called Can You Trust the Bible? Such good stuff. Many people say that science and the Bible are incompatible, as you know, Dr. Sala. Uh, Darwinists will say this. There's a lot of question out there about creation and whether or not God exists and these sorts of questions. But really, when you look at the history of science, many of the great scientists throughout history were Christians. So how do we address that question with unbelieving friends about science and and the Bible being incompatible? Well, that's one of the issues that I discussed in my book, uh, scientific evidence. In in 1861, the French Academy of Science published a book stating there were 51 facts of science that contradicted the Bible. But today, there's not a scientist in the world who would stand behind one of those facts. (laughs) The Bible is not a textbook on science, but it's accurate in the statements that it makes of the scientific nature. For example, Acts 7.22 says Moses was schooled in wisdom of the Egyptians, who believed the world was hatched from an egg. Like, it makes the statement, the stars are without number. Jeremiah 33, 22, that the world is round, Isaiah 42, the life of all flesh is in the blood. Every time I give blood, when my doctor wants some, I say, you know, centuries ago, a book told us that the life of all flesh is in the blood. And that's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. Leviticus 17, 14. Yeah, that's so, right. Subsequently, when we come with bias then we sometimes are confused. But if you come with an open mind and you want to know more about the power of this book, you will find it, and it is there in flaming red red 
uh, covers. Yeah, that's right. That's great. What, what about fulfilled prophecy? This is one of my favorite defenses of the Word of God, because when you look at the statistical likelihood of one man fulfilling all of the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, it's it could only be Jesus. How strong is that argument when you're speaking to people who don't believe the Bible is trustworthy? Well, first of all, I would say, what is the greatest prophecy that we find in this? And I would go back, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In a few days, we're going to celebrate Christmas. So if you go to what the book says, and you accept it with an open mind, you come away with answers to some of those questions. J. Edwin Orr was a real scholar. He had a number of PhDs. And he said there's one God who reveals his word in the Bible, his works in science. And the Bible deals with text, and science deals with facts. But the extension of a text is to interpret it, and the extension of a fact is a theory. And subsequently, there is so much pragmatic evidence in this book that if you come with an open mind, you find answers to it without any question. I went into China for the first time in 1966, and I uh, was entirely with a secular group. And on the last evening there, we there was a banquet. And as we were standing to go into the dining room, there's a young man, I would say in his early 20s, approached one of the members of the group and said, do you have a Bible? And he said, well, I have one at home. Mm-hmm. And the lad said, do you read your Bible? And the uh, it was a British guy, and he said, no, I don't read my Bible. It's just there in my library. And the young man said, if you have a Bible, why don't you read it? Hmm. Why don't you read it? And he, he didn't know what to say. Wow. When I first began going into China and Russia, and at the same time, I took with me all kinds of Bibles. And we gave them to people who had no Bibles. That's a whole story in itself. But subsequently, there is no other book in the world in demand as much as this book that we call the Bible. Excellent. Well, you have referenced the issue of our testimony and the lives who have, you know, that, that have been transformed through the years, people who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're born again by the Spirit of God, and they have their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. This is a very, very important thing. I mean, certainly we cannot reduce personal testimony, you know, the, the proof of the Bible to personal testimony, but it certainly underscores the reality of what what the Bible is saying, and that is Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and those who place their faith and trust in him will become new creations. I mean, that that's a very, very strong piece of evidence to see Christians who are really new creations in Jesus Christ and completely different from the world. Well, definitely. But if you're a pragmatist, then you go beyond that, and we look at what has taken place even in my lifetime, how radically we have made discoveries that affirm the authority of this book. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Uh, In my book, I talk about Qumran and the effect of the scrolls that came out of the caves at Qumran and how they simply affirm the authority of Scripture. And to me, that was really very exciting. 
uh, on my first trip to Israel, we came up in a half track on the backside, and now there's a cable car that whisks people to the top of this. But Matsada is a powerful testimony to the authority of God's Word. A Arab lad by the name of Abba, uh, his name slips my mind at the moment, uh, he allegedly went looking for lost sheep in one of the caves at Qumran. Instead, he, he discovered the Isaiah manuscript hmm. that had been there for centuries. And subsequently, every Old Testament book has come out of the caves of Qumran, with the exception of the Book of Esther. And those manuscripts that are now at the cave of the shrine in Jerusalem affirm the authority of Scripture being passed from generation to generation without being corrupted. It's yes. a powerful testimony, and it's an exciting one, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Very true. You know, once you do accept that the Bible is the Word of God, which for many people, that's their first step toward coming to know the Lord, what do you advise them to do to act on that evidence? Because I know that's something that you do cover in the book as well. Well, first of all, I would say, hey, find a church where you hear God's Word proclaimed and get there and begin to soak up what it's all about. Uh, It's going to be Christmas in a few days. And so we go back and say, look, Centuries ago, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. And forever is a long, long time. It sure is. You know, do you advise people who are just reading the Bible for the first time to start with a particular book of the Bible? I know often the Gospel of John is the one that people recommend, but what do you recommend new, you know, people who are new to the Bible, uh, where should they start reading it? Well, the Gospel of John is a good place to start. Or, with the Christmas story, start with Luke. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God endures forever. This is the Christmas season, and it's not Santa Claus and the reindeer, but it's God spoke through the prophets and told them that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child. His name is Jesus Christ. And so he is the reason for Christmas. And subsequently, the authority of Scripture only affirms this and tells us who he is and what he did, but he's still changing lives. Uh, Some time ago, I was in a restaurant, and I couldn't help but overhearing a conversation in the booth next to me. And uh, there was a young man who was a Christian there, and then the others were not Christians, and they were ripping him up about believing this book, the Bible, blah, blah, blah. And so I couldn't stand it no longer. And I turned to them and I said, excuse me, couldn't help but hearing your conversation. Let me ask you a question. Let's suppose that you are right and he is wrong. What has he lost? And faces begin to turn red, and they say, oh, I don't know. I says, look, the truth of what he believes has been verified and passed from generation to generation. What he said, he has nothing to lose, and you have everything to lose if you're wrong. So in my book, I also have a section when we get down to the end where I say, okay, pragmatic uh, uh, evidence. What is the truth of Scripture? And so I say there are three possibilities. Number one, you can ignore all of this and just bypass it. Well, it's just an old habit, you know, it's, it's, it's an old thing. 
or you can trivialize it. You can deny it or you can embrace it. And when you embrace it, then God works in our lives. And subsequently, we have a whole different outlook and our lives are entirely different. Very good. Well, the name of the book is Can You Trust the Bible? Dr. Harold Sala with us. And so good to have you here, Dr. Sala. God bless you and thanks for being here. Thanks. My, my privilege. People can get a book on through the internet or go to guidelines.org and we can see that you get one. Wonderful. Thank you again. And thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We will see you next time.